Hello and welcome to the One Big Podcast. It is me, your host, fellow worker Jason, here with fellow worker Derek. Say hello, Derek. Hello. And today we have a very special guest, uh, author and general badass, Kim Kelly, who's written a new book called Fight Like Hell. Uh, you might know her from the Vice Union, writing about music, or um, her coverage of the Met Cole Warriors strike. Uh, all over the internet, she's great. Hi, Kim. Hi, thank you so much for having me, for being interested in my little book. Yeah, uh, I I just got the galley copy, uh, and I'm only like 60 pages in or so, but it's very good so far. Uh, it's like ve- chapter four, probably. Yeah, I, I just started getting into the wobbly stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> self-interested, I guess. Um, I wanted to discuss, before we get into the book, uh, a little bit about how do you switch from, because you started as like a heavy metal writer. Uh, yeah. How did you switch from like heavy metal to labor? What was that I mean, like? I mean, they're both, I'm still the same guy, right? I just, <laughs> uh, my in terms of my writing, it, there's definitely been a shift over the past, God, it's probably been like five or six years now, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, but yeah, I mean, it basically all came down to my time at Vice at Noisy, where I was the heavy metal editor for almost five years. Uh, a few weeks after I got formally hired, some coworkers asked me to have coffee and told me, you know, we're thinking about unionizing. What do you think? Of course, I was like, well, hell yeah. Like, how do I get involved? Like, I'm from a union family. Like, my lines up with my politics. I'd always wanted to be in a union, but I never really thought there was a union out there for, you know, dirtbags who write about heavy metal on the internet. (laughs) But it turns out there was. (laughs) I was, yeah, I was super involved in that process. And um, and every meeting, committee, bargaining session, everything, I was there. And I eventually just kind of realized that I felt like more of a politics writer who was into metal than a metal writer that was into politics. I just felt like at one point, even without me noticing, there's kind of this subtle shift. And by the time I got laid off in 2019, I decided to just go for it and see if I could be a a real labor reporter. And then about a year later, I think I signed the contract for this book. So I guess it worked. Yeah, did a good job. All right. So so you were there at Vice at the beginning of, I think there's like four bargaining units um, at, at, at Vice. I, I might I might have that wrong, but but you were there like at the at the start of it then. Yeah, well, the very first one that organized was the editorial employees, which was about 80 people. And after that, we organized about 400 like film and uh, video production folks. And that was with, <laughs> it was such a complicated beast because the writers were with um, Writers Guild of America East, but then SAG-AFTRA was involved with some of the hosts and MPEG was there involved with some of the production folks. So there's like three unions, all kinds of bargaining units, a lot going on, but I was predominantly, and I helped organize as long as I was there, I helped organize <laughs> as much as I could but the editorial unit was where I was at and that's where I guess my most of my experience drew from. Did you have anything to do with the IWW's free journal, freelance journalist union? I am a member who is behind on her dues. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> so apologies for that. But yeah I was I mean I, I would certainly not steal valor and say I was like super super involved. I'm just very excited to see that happening. Around the same time that was getting off the ground there was this project that kind of grew out of a bunch of, well, laid off Writers Guild of America East members from various digital media properties who started organizing uh, in a a group that's now known as the Freelance Solidarity Project. Mm. And I was like kind of involved in that at the beginning. And yeah, I'm I'm like, um, I guess I'm a bad 
I'm a bad writer union person at this point because I've been so busy with work and writing the book. But I'm a big fan of everybody, and I do have a red card. That's a. I mean yeah. that that that's a lot of like. There's a lot of labor politics there. I mean, um, you know, and and we don't we don't necessarily need to dig into it, but like listening to like all the different labor groups that kind of swooped in and are part of that organizing effort. There's a lot of like territories and who represents who and like who's kind of dominant in the who's kind of dominant in the industry and and who do we organize with so I mean that, that I imagine that must have been a hell of a time to sort of navigate and figure out like how all of this works it was really interesting and one thing I should have said um in my last response was like one of the reasons I wasn't as super involved in either of those two efforts because I'm on the writers guild council and it has been wild for the past couple of years. There's been a, a lot happening on that level. And it took, takes a lot of time. We're still dealing with a lot of uh, the after effects of seeing what happens when the old guard of a union is confronted with a younger, more progressive new generation and what kind of conflicts happen there. Boy, how but, yeah, that's the whole thing. But yeah, like, like there's, there's a lot going on with the Rise Guild of America East and the News Guild both started organizing in that space. And there's always like a very friendly relationship, but there's definitely, you know, everybody wants to have more people join their union. So, yeah, I, I got a, a crash course in uh, basically in everything involved in starting a union and bargaining contract kind of out of the blue. It sounds like they should like, you know, simplify into one big union. But what do I know? <laughs> Many people are saying. <laughs> um, so what I like about your writing, especially in this book, is that it's a lot of labor writing is stats and facts like this date this thing happened this many people were involved so and so you know this is how it turned out but you're very much more uh like involved in the emotion and the story of what's happening and like places you there is that um on purpose or is that just your style or is it like you want to try to connect people in a more deeper way i suppose that's just how i approach writing in general since i've spent so much time being a music and culture writer you know there's not as much of a focus on you know dry stats and statistics yeah. all that like you need those to to add to a story but that's never been what's grabbed me i'm not a numbers guy i dropped out of college because i'm not a numbers guy <laughs> so at least like i'm still like i mentioned earlier I'm, I'm still not even great at remembering dates and things like that but i remember the people and the stories and ultimately that's how you connect with a reader and how you inspire people right like here's this person here's something about them here's what they did here's a way to relate to them and hopefully you can find inspiration in hearing about what they've struggled with and what they've overcome like it's all i guess i write from the heart yeah. And that sounds a little hokey, but yeah, I think that's what I went out end up doing because I'm not like formally trained in any of this. I just really love the workers. <laughs> yeah. So there's a the, the, there's a question that comes out of that for me. So I I had read a book I feel like two two-ish years ago, um, called Beaten Down and uh, Beaten Down Worked Up, I believe. Um, yeah, is book. That's right. It's a it's it's it was a it was a good book. And there are parts of it that have really stuck with me over the last um, couple of years. While like I've I've been out there talking to workers, I organizing in my own workplace, helping other people organize in their workplace. And one of the things that really kind of stuck with me, um, and I can't recall the chapter immediately. I'm sorry, Steve Greenhouse. Uh, but um, but there's a section where 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 he's talking to like people about their knowledge of what came before, right? Like, like, you know, we, we, we won the weekend and we still hear refrains of this from the old guard in some, in some cases, like we won the weekend, we won the 40 hour work week, we won 
these wages and then like these new workers who are coming in some of whom are might be in two tier systems for example or or have a very different experience kind of look okay great like thanks for the story um i'm actually working this weekend and um i'm pretty sure i'm working mandatory overtime so appreciate the previous struggle but i, I don't know like like how do i connect to it right and so there's this there's this question even even now among some of the groups that that uh, i'm actively working with who are who are trying to organize with workers and one thing i hear in particular old guard folks who have been around for many many years is we have to talk about the history we have to talk about the struggles and the wins um and and i and i'm trying to figure out like how useful that is and I, and I, and I don't mean to throw like a how useful is your book that you've written about the history of labor but like that that is kind of a question that I've seen come up and that I even see in my interactions with people so like like how do we how do we tell the story in a way that people give a shit about and and it inspires them to kind of join the struggle and have the struggle I mean you have to do it in a way that shows that you actually understand what their lives are like like you said it's nice to talk about the eight hour day and the weekend and child labor, but not everyone has an eight hour work day. Not everyone has a weekend and there are still children in this country who have to go to work tomorrow. You know, we, we've come very, a very far way, but there's so much further to go. But I think the way that you tackle that is maybe not focusing on those big kind of banner wins that were wins, of course, but aren't as applicable to workers today. And going and using a more personalized approach, you know, talking about, again, the people who made this happen, telling the stories of like the women and people of color and queer folks and disabled workers who went out there against insurmountable odds and won. Like, I think, like, think about somebody like Dorothy Lee Bolden in Atlanta in the 60s and the National Domestic Workers Union. She was a, a, a domestic worker, a Black woman in the South who decided that she was fed up with being underpaid and treated poorly and having her work, her life's work denigrated. And she organized her fellow workers. I think at its peak, the union had 10,000 members and and got super involved in the civil rights movement and the voting rights movement. Like just seeing what one person can do with thousands of other people. I think that's inspiring. I think that's more applicable to folks like domestic workers in Philly, where I'm at, where we have, I think the past couple of years, we've passed a domestic workers bill of rights that actively helps people and gets portable healthcare benefits to workers in this city. There's a direct line that can be drawn there. Like tell people about Dorothy Lee Bolden or Baird Rustin, like show them that people just like them have actually changed the world in ways that matter. And maybe leave some of the older slogans to, you know, internal PowerPoints or whatever. It actually brings up um, a point I want to get to is like in the in your book, you really focus on underrepresented people, uh, you know, women, uh, people of color, et cetera, uh, disabled people. Uh, and so it's like the underrepresented of the already underrepresented of labor history, you know, like uh, what when you set out was that the goal oh absolutely because that's those are the people i want to read about and the people i tend to cover in the work that i was doing already at teen vogue and the baffler and other places and really i just viewed this book as an opportunity to dig deeper into those histories that maybe i've been able to mention or like have a paragraph or two here and there but Mm -hmm. i could finally dig into those footnotes and those you know just seeing all the places that people are hidden in plain sight in labor history 
when maybe there's a whole chapter about one guy, but a couple of sentences about a woman named Rosa. Well, what was Rosa doing? I yeah. want to know what Rosa was up to. And that's why I found Rosa Flores in right. the Fair Garment Workers Strike. Like, it's like a treasure hunt, really. Yeah. And that's, and I, as a disabled person, like, we're never, we, well, not never. It's it's seldom that you see the, the intersections illustrated between disability justice and the labor movement. And I really appreciate having the opportunity to have a whole chapter to play with that because there's so much there. And it's so just so cool like the stuff is so much fun yeah it's juicy <laughs> you know that's something to worry about yeah um also in your book you focus you have a whole section on the iww uh so selfishly i'm going to ask about that uh when uh when researching it were you surprised by anything or uh, i know you already have a long history with the iww so like uh i wasn't shocked that you included it but uh where you're just like, oh, the, I didn't know this about the, the union. Yeah. The one person that, and it, it focuses on individual people too. And one person that I didn't know quite as much about was Frank Little. And I really relish the opportunity to read more about him and learn about him because that's another one of labor's great martyrs that, you know, there's not that many statues dedicated to him. It's right. not a Frank Little day, but there should be, you know, and even just having the chance to dig into the more complex characters like Lucy Parsons. Yeah. who has been a hero of mine for years, but really just digging into her political evolution and her personal history and the way that she interacted with people and being able to take her for as she was as a whole person who was flawed, who made bad decisions, but also dedicated her life to the working class struggle. Just having the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into someone I'd long admired and learned a little bit more about how she viewed the world and moved through the world. Yeah, I liked her her section because it was very much like she's a human being, though, you know. So she, she did a great thing here, but she did a bad thing here. That's that's life. As a person who writes and like does film and stuff like that and watches a lot of movies, I like I like when it's like not good guys or bad guys. It's just like oh, they're just guys. And they they <laughs> both they they all mess up. Um, that's yeah. the thing, like the conflict between labor and capital, workers and bosses. There, I feel like it's. It is good versus evil in a way, but you got to allow a lot of room for nuance because yeah. some really great people did some fucked up things and some yeah. shitty people did some useful things. You know, it's yeah. that's just people, just, just guys. It's just guys. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like I was trying to make some sort of weird deal out of a truck, but <laughs> I mean, I'm from Jersey, so you're speaking my language. <laughs> so I know you're covering a lot of stuff uh, right now because you're a busy person. One of the things you've been covering though for last year is the coal miner strike. Uh, down in Alabama, it's a it's a, first off, it's been a whole officially a year now that they've been on strike, um, and a lot of stuff has happened. But um, what's currently happening that you can update us on? Well, I mean, I, tomorrow I'm actually flying down to Alabama to see them because there's a big rally on April 6th, like a rallying caravan that they put together. There's a bunch of labor leaders and, and unions from across the South who are going to come out and lend their support. And just show solidarity with these workers who have been out on the line for over a year. I think throughout the entire strike, about about 100 people have crossed the line out of an initial walkout of 1,100 people. And that's honestly, like, you never want to see someone cross the picket line. But that's pretty good, given yeah. how intense the strike has been, given how brutally the companies tried to repress it, given how how dirty law enforcement's involvement has been and given how hard it is to make ends meet 
just to start with, let alone when you're on strike, if you have children or elders or just people to support, like just seeing the tenacity and determination and the community that these folks have built amongst themselves, it's just been incredible. And one of the aspects of the story that sticks out to me the most and gives me gives me some ideas is just seeing the way that some of the folks in the beginning, well, actually a lot of the folks in the beginning would have described themselves as conservative, Republican, Trump supporter, like that's where they were at. And now there's people that I've known and, and gotten to know over this whole time who have seen who showed up, who supported them, who right. donated, who ignored them, who took the company's side. And there are people out here now who are like quoting Eugene Debs on Twitter and meeting with Bernie <laughs> and calling themselves socialists because they realized like, okay, some things are bigger than red or blue. Some things are just right. come down to like workers supporting workers and who's on your side and who isn't. Yeah. And that's, that's in Alabama. That's deep red. So if it happened there, it could happen anywhere. Uh, yeah. Look at their senators. Absolute yeah. maniacs. <laughs> uh, I was just down South for something and uh, I was like, I was trying to explain to some people up here, friends of mine, that it's like, it's not like crazy. Down. It is weird, but it's not crazy down there. It, it, you can talk to people like people and suddenly it becomes much less divided. Yeah, it's like that anywhere, finding common ground, finding ways to relate to one another. I mean, that's like some organizing 101 kind of right. stuff, yeah. right? Like you find the ways you can connect and then you work out the more difficult stuff. So that, 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 that's why we don't go in and say, hey, join the Democratic Party. We go in and say, let's form a union. Let's let's not worry about the politics, right? Because what we're here to do is organize in our workplace, not get people elected. So, um, you know, when you when you put forward the solidarity in your workplace, um, that that obviously is your common ground. That is a place that you can that you can connect on. And like any good any good unionist, you can argue politics later. I was eating Waffle House every day because, of course, I was and. I kept going to the same Waffle House near the hotel. And of course I ended up trying to unionize it while I was there and talking to them about socialism. (laughs) The cook was like, I just don't think people should have yachts. And I was like, let me tell you something, kid. (laughs) And that's all it takes sometimes. Like people are still people. Like my family are very deeply conservative, like weird backwoods people. As, as a weird backwards person, that's just me talking about them. And like, the only thing we can really agree on besides guns and hating the government is unions. Mm. A lot of people out there like that. So one of the questions that I would love to, that, that, that I'd love to ask, and I guess I am now going to ask is, um, why Teen Vogue? Like, th- th- this is one of those things where, it, like, I think I was 30, I'm 38 now. So 35 or 36, like, it popped up on my radar that Teen Vogue was publishing like these pro labor articles. And, and I was like, well, that's exciting, but why? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to totally demystify whatever perceptions people might have, because literally I started writing for Teen Vogue because I heard they paid okay. And they emailed me back. <laughs> Sometimes that's all it takes. And actually, that's a good I, reason. you know, cause I was, I was already when I started writing for them, it was probably like 2017, I think, at that point. Um, I was working for Vice, getting paid peanuts, uh, getting kind of burned out on writing about metal all day, every day, and was more involved in like New York's activist scene. And my, my attention was shifting a little bit. And I was trying to freelance about other topics. And I reached out to Team Vogue. The first couple of things I wrote about them were like related to the prison industrial complex. 
And I literally just pitched my editor one day. I was like, hey, I think your readers might enjoy hearing about uh, Mother Jones, like this badass labor organizer. That'd be cool. And she wrote back me like, that would be cool. But I don't know that our readers are necessarily familiar with what a union is. Why don't you just write an explainer of that first? And I did. And people were not expecting to see that from Teen Vogue. And mm-hmm. it kind of it popped a little bit. Like folks talked about it, folks paid attention. And as a freelancer, I was like, oh, this is cool. And also this is helpful for me. And I, I wrote a couple more pieces and I wrote her back. I was like, hey, what if you gave me a whole column to write about this stuff? And they said, yes. And I've been doing that since 2018. <laughs> like literally just kind of hustled. Yeah, but that's it, it, that's incredible. And it felt it was at a point where Teen Vogue and a lot of mainstream publications were already shifting towards more political coverage. This was early Trump era. People were paying a lot more attention to politics because we could not escape. And I think they found a niche where like the, the younger progressive audience that they're already targeting were interested in these labor stories and in political stories and in historical context for the moment we're living through. And I think they've just realized like, oh, this is working. I guess this is just what we do now. And, you know, at this point, you know, one of the most amazing things that happened this month and a month full of labor victories was seeing the Condé Nast union drive go public. So unionizing Teen Vogue, but for real, like, I feel like there's a, there's a connection there. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. So, I mean, I, and I've definitely seen some of the, uh, I've seen some of the things that came out of, out of Teen Vogue and some of them are like that, that sort of like very narrative style that you've talked about, like who is, who is Mother Jones? There's an article on Helen Keller, which is, you know, fascinating. And I've also just, which I don't believe is what was one of yours, but, you know, I also heard a really great piece on some program that I listened to about like Helen Keller's history, which includes intersection with the IWW and mm-hmm. also some messiness because her history can be very messy sometimes. Um, so did like, did this, did this lay groundwork for you in thinking about how you could write about the labor movement? Oh, totally. Even when I was putting together the proposal for my book, I went back and read through a lot of my older columns to be like, okay, yeah, definitely want to put that in there. Definitely want to put that in there. Got to add her, got to add them just as kind of a blueprint because what I was doing there, I mean, that's what I want to do forever. You know, like that's what I'm interested in. And um, just seeing the way that people respond to certain things, like people want to read about stories, the stories of people that are like them, that they can relate to, that they see themselves represented in because the labor movement, the labor press for a long time has seemed very, uh, what's the phrase? Like male, pale and stale in some ways and sort, sort of like this room right now actually a little bit <laughs> at least i'm a cripple but oh. yeah so, <laughs> so i can say it but, <laughs> but yeah i think i think people respond to to the story to stories that they can actually relate to and i think a lot of the writers and editors at teen vogue recognize that and gave gave writers the space to delve into these things like they let me get away with so much like I've written about prison strikes and abolition and I did a whole profile of Emma Goldman like I love that one because I love Emma Goldman oh my god she I wanted to sneak her in the book but she didn't I even there are a lot of people that 
I wanted to kind of mention or put in the book, but people that I think have already gotten a lot of attention. Mm. And I wanted to make sure the people I was focusing on were maybe a little lesser known yeah. or from more marginalized backgrounds or just, you know, maybe surprises too. I love that answer, by the way. It's such an artist answer. Why'd you write that song? We needed another song. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, sometimes it just do be like that. Yeah, like I had a job to do and I did it. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I needed 400 bucks. <laughs> so to go back to the coal miner strike because I, I had some other things I want to talk about. Um, how did you start covering it? I literally just showed up. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it makes me feel that my whole career is very like happenstance, right? But um, I, I was actually, I was down there. That was my third trip down to Alabama in the past, in like a span of like five or six months because I originally was down there covering the first Amazon union drive at Bessemer. Mm-hmm. And the first two trips I went down to report on that for more perfect union. And then I went down again because uh, they're having kind of a campaign closing rally. This is after after the first um, vote count come out and folks are kind of resituating themselves to look forward to see what they're going to do next. I wanted to go see my friends, but I had some free time and I heard uh, actually at that rally, some of the miners from the UMWA, they came out and they spoke in support of the Amazon workers mm. and told and men talked about being on strike. And I was like, huh, there's a coal miner strike? what's that about and it turned out just about 20 minutes down the road in brookwood all these guys had been out on strike for about a week and i had some free time so me and a friend we picked up some krispy creams and drove out to the picket line just to kind of say hello and see what was going on and i ended up talking to a couple of guys for a while and and i just remember thinking like oh this is going to be the next big story because it's right down the road from amazon like it's all kind of happening in this intertwined moment in time like oh, I should write about this. This is cool. I don't know very much about this whole situation. So let me, let me learn about it. And then I just kind of kept coming back and kept getting closer to folks and kept writing more and getting more and more frustrated that it wasn't getting as much attention as I thought it deserved. And then I just sort of became a personal crusade at this point. (laughs) I saw you respond on Twitter to somebody about this, but uh, some people would say, you know, coal, it's, you know, that was the 1900s. We should be moving away from coal, you know, like for the planet's sake, um, which, you know, theoretically, I, I also agree with like, it's probably better if we move to better energy sources. Um, but like, what do you do with those workers? Like, why should why should anyone care about coal miners? It's so 1910, you know, like, yeah. what would you say to some, somebody that has that argument? It's like asking, why should we care about workers? Yeah. You know, like just because you don't agree with the labor that someone performs in order for them to survive and and make their way in this country in this society that doesn't mean that it is valueless or that they are valueless and that they are undeserving of our solidarity right and in terms of coal one of the things that especially about this strike that i kind of emphasize not to discount the very real and very valid environmental concerns attached to this industry but the, the coal mine that these guys work at, or these folks work at, uh, it mines metallurgical coal, which is used to make coke, which is used to make steel. Right. If we move to an entirely green energy economy tomorrow, those folks would still be down there mining that coal because huh. that's not what it's used for. It's used, it's actually all of the coal they mine, I think up to 90% is shipped overseas to developing countries. And it's, it's kind of funny in a horrible way in that the, the coal that these folks mine in Alabama is sent overseas to Asia and Europe. 
And then all the money goes to their owners on Wall Street. And nothing ends up going back down to that coal mine except the people. That's the like downside of a more connected world is like, oh, nothing stays in your neighborhood. Like yeah. none of your money stays there. It's all going somewhere else. Someone else's pocket. The thing. Usually going up to Wall Street or yeah. going to BlackRock, which is a majority owner of uh, of the company. And right. you know, everyone everyone knows BlackRock. Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole conversation. So that's actually one of those. those okay. I'm sorry. So that's, that's actually that's actually something I, I I didn't know about those about those coal miners. I mean, I've been oh. following I've been following that for uh, a while as well. But I I don't. I'm like searching my memory, which is admittedly not always great um, <laughs> about like that detail about the uh, about about how the coal they mine is used. And that, I think, has just eluded me for some reason. So I appreciate the uh, the education moment. Sure. Yeah, it's not um, because I think and I didn't know about that until I showed up and talked to people, you know, like it's not necessarily going to be the headline, but that's a very important part of a complicated story. And it's, it is a complicated, nuanced story. It's not, like you said before, it's not just good versus evil, though BlackRock is definitely evil. It's, you know, it's a community that has been left with only really one option for a decent job. And that option is, is complicated. Yeah. Like, what do you do? You root for the workers. That's what you do. Yeah, I, I so I, I really, I really appreciate those points. And I also really jive with the idea of, you know, supporting workers in general, like you, you see it, it's kind of a stereotype at this point about like, like, especially like service workers who, who work in restaurants, for example, like, well, why do you work in a restaurant, go get a, a, a different job or get a better job. But I know people like that's their career. They've done this for 20, 25 years, and they love the work and they and they, they do the work. And, and like our, our collective outrage that anybody would continue working in the service sector as a career instead of thinking about how we can build restaurants we can retire in is, is, is like completely outrageous to me. Um, so, I mean, definitely, definitely support workers. I, I, I do think that there's always a debate that we will always have to have about like, there are, there are jobs in the last hundred years since the IWW has been in place that don't exist anymore. Um, that, that, that we, that we probably, wouldn't necessarily want to hold on to because um, society and technology marches forward, but we do have to think and we have to consult with those workers, right? It's like the, the, the wobbly in me says, we don't go and tell workers, this is what we're going to do for you, right? Because what we're really telling them is this is what we're going to do to you. <laughs> what we should be doing is having a conversation with them about, about like, and not necessarily these workers, but like coal writ large, like, like these jobs, green, green future, safer earth, um, healthier, healthier, greener society. How do we like, like, what do you need? And how do we start transitioning away from that? And they have to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, you can't just show up like so many, I feel like well-meaning liberal nonprofits have showed up in Appalachia and be like, we're going to teach you all to code. And folks who, <laughs> and like, like and well, I think one of the pieces missing is I've seen people say that about these workers too. Like, oh, why don't they just get another job? It's like, well, the, the missing piece is that they love their jobs and they are proud to be coal miners because of that history and that legacy. Some of these folks are third or fourth generation. You know, it's just because you do not understand the appeal of a job or the importance or impact of a job does not mean it is a bad job. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a hard and dirty and dangerous job, but there's, there's people that literally tell me like, I miss being down there. I feel at home underground and you can't, 
you can't wish that away by showing up with a couple laptops and being like, here, we'll, we'll fix you. Get a Twitter. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> Some of them are on Twitter, though, which is very cute. <laughs> it's, it's like going into the mines. It's dark. Something's going to kill you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I said before, there's a lot of different stories to cover. And you're jumping all over the country covering them. How do you choose what to cover and like what's what's on your plate? You mean like in the book or just in general? Both. Well, yeah, because <laughs> the book has definitely consumed my past year slash maybe this year too. Um, but even, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's I don't have like a pithy answer. I think I look for stories that I feel like no one else is paying attention to, or maybe it's covering from an angle that I either don't agree with or think is maybe lacking in context. Um, one of the stories I wish I could be covering right now, and I'm going to try and figure out a way to do it. I just need to somehow magically add seven more hours to the day, um, is the striking dancers at the Star Garden Strip Club in North Hollywood who have been out for their, yeah, they've been out for a week. They're organized, uh, they're members of Strippers United. They're, I mean, this is, this is a strike. This is an incredibly interesting story. It's a workplace safety story and it hasn't been getting much attention, and I want to write about it so bad, but I just don't have the time. So maybe somebody listening will. But stories like that, any, anytime I get an email or a message or a tip or just see a tidbit, I'm like, oh, man, I want to know more about that. Oh, I'm a journalist. I can go find out. Like, <laughs> that's a good feeling. And when it came to choosing the stories in the book, I had a very loose rubric in my head. I was just kind of like, is this well known? Is there an aspect of this that I can dig into? Is this... You know, do I think people were interested? Do I think this person had an impact that reverberated out throughout their specific time period? Uh, does it seem like fun to write about? Right. Does this make you go, oh, wow, cool. Like there's, yeah, I'm not like super formally trained or an academic or anything. So I kind of just dived in, dove into this being like, well, what, what speaks to me? And then just sort of hope that it speaks to everybody else too. That's the best way to do anything. Um, yeah, that dancer strike reminded me of, I watched a documentary about two strip clubs in like the Pacific Northwest that became worker-owned, so the dancers owned the clubs. Lusty Lady? Yeah, I think Francisco? so. I, th I think yeah, that was it. Oh, yeah, I haven't got I that far yet. one of the dancers. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I remember watching the documentary like, that's a cool idea. Uh, oh, wait, the, the live nude girls documentary? Yeah, I think so. I think that was yeah, cool. that's about the lusty lady in San Francisco. That's yeah. in my chapter on sex work. That's a awesome. really interesting story. Yeah, it was um, super cool. I'm really interested in worker ownership too. I'm, I'm trying to do a thing, but it's taken forever. Um, Love doing the thing. <laughs> your book comes out this month. You're doing a lot of writing. I know. <laughs> I, I saw the panic in your eyes. Uh, <laughs> panic and anticipation. Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, fingers crossed. Don't worry. It's going to do great. It's a great book. Um, from what I've read so far, but pandemics really killed my attention span. So, you know, I oh, used to be able to read like a million books and now I'm, I'm like three a year and it's really sad. I appreciate uh, that Jason saved that caveat of what, of what I've read so far anyway. So, so. <laughs> it She's could a take a girl. real dive. It's a long book. Like I, I turned in like 40,000 more words than they asked for oh, and I could have done more. <laughs> I, um, for about two months, I worked in a book binding factory and, uh, Oh, you would have hated me. Oh, it was it's fine. It doesn't matter the size. Uh, but you get free books. That was one of, that was like the only perk. And so I've got so many books that just like you know, because you're making it, you're like, this is sort of interesting. I'll take one. Oh, that's amazing. That's how like they used to have a free bookshelf at Vice back when I was there. Cause that was back when they wrote about books. And yeah. 
<laughs> there's a whole shelf full of book, like galleys and stuff that people send in that that would end up in this no man's land and i found that one day i still have a bunch of those books <laughs> yeah but books are magic they're just yeah. i can't believe i made one i'm so happy i got two yeah i i have the same feeling about i have like four thousand records or whatever but and I, you know, used to be in a band. I put out records, and it was the same thing. I was like, I'm part of this now. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. One of the things I wanted to talk about before we let you go is completely unrelated to all of that. Um, I once bought tickets to Black Flags over Brooklyn, which I know you helped organize. I didn't <laughs> get to go. Baby. I didn't get to go because I got fired for trying to organize at my job and didn't have any money to go. Um, That's the best possible reason, though. Yeah. <laughs> so I gave my ticket to somebody excused. else. Yeah. <laughs> Is there ever going to be a Black Flags over Brooklyn, too? Because I'd love, oh, I would God. love to go. I hope so. I think like we still have a little, like, a little bank account where we have some money saved up to do it. it it's just, it comes down to timing. It comes down to timing and time because Jack, the, I did it with three people, me, my friend Jack and my partner, who's downstairs, um, we put it together. And then, of course, everyone else that made it be a thing were involved, right? But it was kind of our little baby. And now we're all so busy and I'm doing this labor stuff, but never say never, you know? I think I'm, I'm looking at my uh, my little New York City book party as kind of a mini reunion because Sunrot and Trophy Hunter playing. Yeah. But yeah, never say never, like... We'll just say maybe. I think that Black Flags was such a, a beautiful experience for a lot of us, especially it was a beautiful experience for me. And I, I don't, I don't know if I could top it. Maybe sometimes you just do something once and do the hell out of it. But yeah. maybe sometimes you do part two because <laughs> the world needs another anti-fascist black metal festival. Yeah, it was really <laughs> cool. I was like, I'm totally here for it if it happens because I want to go this time. <laughs> Can I ask just just I'd love a I'd love like a suggestion from you, Kim, before before we go as well, and that is um, your book "Fight Like Hell." Um, that's great. I'm a worker. I've read it. I'm pumped up. I'm fired up. I'm ready to get down and get dirty and fight for a union um, and build something in my workplace. Uh, my question is, where do we send workers after after your book? What is the postscript of of Fight Like Hell in in giving them the practical tools that they need to get organized? Can we send them back to work and tell them, go talk to your coworkers hmm? and see what they have to say. Tell them what you learned. Tell them what you thought was interesting. Tell them what you think you could do better. And then see what they think and see if they think, oh, yeah, maybe it's time for us to do something, too. Like... You can always Google unions. You can always look up the IWW. You can always just form your own thing entirely. The world is your oyster, really. It All it takes is that first step of turning to the person you're next to and be like, so what do you think of this shit? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think your publicist would like that answer because you were supposed to say, buy a copy of your book for everybody that you work with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can... He tells my first book. <laughs> yeah, you can do that too. Or get it at the library. You know, yeah, you I, it all counts. Make a zine out of it. I don't fucking care. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's about all you have. Derek, do you have anything else? No, I think it's been a pleasure meeting you. Uh, I, I I look forward to continue reading you write, writing about the labor movement. I'm glad that I'm glad that we had people out there writing in Teen Vogue and <laughs> and I, I don't want to put too much weight upon your shoulders, but like you and the group of authors that are like have been writing for a, like a youthful audience, I, I think you've helped 
like build the next generation of of labor. Um, uh, that's that that is my perspective on it. Like I've been going, I go to a lot of labor meetings. I I go to the Huron Valley Air Labor Federation in our area. Um, I'm a, I'm a delegate there. I'm a I'm a union I'm a union person in my own union at Eastern Michigan University. I'm trying to build a union elsewhere, and I see a lot of like I see a lot of white faces, a lot of older white people. Um, and nothing against those people. They they show up, they get work done. But I, I've also been seeing younger people showing up and, and getting involved. And I think it's because there are people out there writing about it and talking about it in a way that connects to them and isn't just the same old, let's get together and follow Robert's rules <laughs> kind of attitude. It's about the real fight for real bread and butter change in your workplace and I just, I hope you keep doing it. Thank you. I mean, you just got to show people that this history is yours too. And so is the future. And that's the show, folks. Big thanks to Kim for being on the show. You can get her book, Fight Like Hell, wherever books are sold on April 26th. It was recorded and edited by me, fellow worker Jason. The intro and outro song are also by me, fellow worker Jason. If you'd like to join the IWW and be part of the One Big Union, Go to iww.org slash join. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, you can always email us at ypsilanti at iww.org. And until next time, an injury to one is an injury to all.